Good morning. We continue our series in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 today. So if you'd like to turn to page 1242 there in the Pew Bible, you'll be all ready for this morning. When have you felt helpless? When have you seemed to give up hope? As I sat this week and reflected upon that statement in my own life, I have had moments of total helplessness. When our son had cardiac arrest on an x-ray table, not respiratory arrest, that had already taken place, but when his heart stopped and we were sitting in the room next to the x-ray table, our life crashed. There was a time when our daughter was in high school that she struggled greatly. I felt helpless as a father. When my young wife had internally hemorrhaged over a weekend due to a misdiagnosis and a ruptured tubal pregnancy, and as I rushed her to the doctor and then to the hospital to realize she was within hours of dying, and I felt helpless. I have stood next to the bed, especially young in ministry, with someone who had just passed away. It had just taken place, and I had no words. I, I didn't know what to say. I, to be honest, I still don't. What do you say in that moment? especially in a family situation where the one that has just passed away never wanted to embrace Christ. And their family is believers, hopeless. I remember a time driving on I-80. That alone would give you times of hopelessness and helplessness, correct? Correct. But there was a time in the winter where I was coming back with my family and we hit a patch of black ice. And there were cars in front of us already stopped because they had hit the black ice. And I'm doing everything to control the car. And then I look in the rearview mirror and behind me, further down 80, was a semi that just also just hit the black ice. And the trailer turned sideways and began coming down the road towards this pile of cars. And I said to my family, brace yourself. I pulled the nose of the car up as close to the car in front of me as I could. And the truck, the trailer literally stopped six inches behind our car. But for that moment of time, I felt helpless. What is the list for you? When do you feel helpless? The death of a loved one? To put it in younger terms, because I've been there, you had a rough night. You didn't prepare for class that morning. And the professor or the teacher, no matter what your age says, we're having a pop quiz this morning. 
and you know. This material that will be on there, you don't even understand. And you feel helpless. Some of you know the pain of a divorce. And I've sat with people who have felt so helpless. Some of you have received medical diagnoses that boggles your mind. But in some of those instances, really bad news turned into really great news. Amen? Amen. Our son was revived right there on the x-ray table and brought back to life. Our daughter got through the struggles in high school and did well. My young wife, after having this internal hemorrhaging for over a weekend and having five pints of blood in her abdomen, who was told we might never have children, we have two. All of you have similar stories of really bad things and bad news. Somehow God turns it around and turns it into really great news. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning, Ephesians 2, that starts with a really bad situation. And by the end of the passage, we're going to see some really great news. Paul is going to show us this contrast, this swing of emotions, and I don't want you to lose sight of how much this is from how helpless we were and the great news that God wishes to bestow upon us. Now to put this in context, don't allow the chapter division starting at chapter 2 verse 1 to, to break the thought that Paul is building from the end of chapter 1. There's this vital connection between the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 1, near the end, we watched the mighty power of God as it raised Christ from the dead, crowned him with glory and honor. And what we're going to see in chapter 2 is that same power working on our behalf in each of our lives, raising us from the dead and seating us with Christ in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you, put your name in there, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the really bad news. Verse 4, but God. 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We'll end the reading there. What is so amazing, we talked in the past how Paul tends to have these run-on sentences. He does it again. In chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7 is again one sentence. It's like he's texting on the phone and he forgets all punctuation. <laughs> and he doesn't take a breath. And so we've talked about how he kind of runs on and our translation puts periods and commas and things to help us read it. But we need to go back and understand what is the subject of this entire first 10 verses and the subject is God. It's not our sinfulness. It's not his grace. It is God. It's all about God. The author of this chain, starting at verse 4, is God himself. No one could have done it, and no one else would have done it. I need to read you a quote uh, this is from, I think, Warren Wiersbe. The words, but God, verse 4, but God, form one of the most significant, eloquent, and inspiring transitions in all of literature. They indicate that a stupendous change has taken place. It is a change from the doom and despair of the valley of death to the unspeakable delights of the kingdom of the Son of God's love. But God. What has he done? There are three main verbs in this one long sentence, so you don't lose them. Here they are. Made alive. Raised. Seated. Made alive. Raised, seated. And the object of these verbs, who has he made alive? Who has he raised? Who has he seated? It is us. Believers in Christ, we are the objects of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's power, God working in us, God's plan and purpose, God's destiny for us. It's all focused on his children. But God. 
I am thankful to uh, Chuck Swindoll for helping me frame this in a way that will make sense for all of us. And he said, there are four questions that Paul answers in this passage. In verses 1 to 3, what was life like before God's gracious rescue? Chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. You were dead. You weren't sick. You weren't needing to be revived. You were dead, spiritually dead. You were lifeless towards God. One author said, you are spiritual corpses in a death valley. And that means that you are separated from God. Your sin has put a gulf between you and a holy God. That's bad news. But he goes on in verse 2. And he says, not only are you dead, but you're depraved, you're diabolical, and you're disobedient. Not depraved. In which you walked following the course of this world, you developed before Christ a lifestyle in which people follow the ways of the world, which eliminates God from everything possible. We're going to do our own thing. And even though God is the God of the universe and your creator and your redeemer, you're going to do your own thing. That's depraved. Not only that, are you, you are diabolical. Verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, you followed Satan. You allowed Satan to control you, your thoughts, your actions, your goals. That's diabolical. Thirdly, you're disobedient. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, we might know right from wrong, but we often choose wrong. That's called disobedient. The little child growing up in each of our homes knows what the rules of the house are and decides whether or not they are going to follow or not. And we choose to follow our plan. Disobedient. We're dead, depraved, diabolical, disobedient. And he makes it even worse in verse 3. He goes on to say that we are carnal, we are corrupt, and we are condemned. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We indulge our sinful nature. Amen? Amen. We don't like to admit it. We want our way carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We work at gratifying our sinful nature apart from Christ. 
That struggle is real. Thank you, Van. It is. We are corrupt. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are essentially, unchangeably bad. And some of you are saying, well, I wasn't so bad. I was a moral moral goody two-shoes into college. Wearsby said, and I had a chuckle when I read this, the only difference between one sinner and another is the level of decay in their life. That is really bad news. Amen? Amen? That's what we were before Christ got a hold of us. Dead, depraved, diabolical, disobedient, carnal, corrupt, condemned, hopeless. And that's why the contrast at verse 4 is so great. But God. See, what did God do for us and why did he do it? And Paul paints this true but bleak picture of what we were in Adam before salvation. But God. Say that with me. But God. There's only, the only thing that will change us is God. No one else. I can't do it. And God did for us three things, starting at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses. He reminds us how bleak it was. God made us alive together with Christ. And this parenthetical statement, by grace you've been saved. God made us alive with Christ. This is called regeneration, to give you the 25-cent theological term. This is an act of God's grace in our lives. He takes this dead, lifeless person spiritually and makes them alive and continues new life with them. Could I affect that kind of change? Can I go over to Memorial Park here in Davenport and say, hey, can anyone wake up today? Well, we'll wait for a warmer day when the ground isn't so frozen. How about that? Come on, guys, get up. It's impossible. Because once you're dead, you're dead. And I think we forget that we are walking among people every day that look so alive and they're dead. They're spiritually dead. God made us alive with Christ. Secondly, in verse 6, God raised us with Christ. It says he raised us up with him. 
It is a unique life and position. It describes our spiritual position and experience, not our physical experience. Thirdly, God seated us with Christ. Verse 6, and seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a position of privilege and power. And why does he do this? Notice verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you notice at the end of verse 7, there's one of those pyramids of kindness. Those word pyramids, and I put it for you at your overflow. Paul could have said his kindness towards us. But no, he said his grace in kindness towards us. No, he has to stack more on the riches of his grace in kindness towards us. No, it's immeasurable. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. And he just says, oh, wait a minute, I'm not done. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's at a loss for words. He's piling them up. Unbelievable. We who were dead. Dead. We're alive. But he doesn't stop there. He raises us up with Christ. He seats us. And would you notice, that's why I put in your notes, each of those verbs is with Christ. It's integral to each of these verbs. We have been identified with Christ, not only in his death to sin, but now in his resurrection, in his exaltation, in his seating at the right hand of the Father, we there as his children right now are there. Now wait a minute, I'm not experiencing that. It's true. It's true. And the only reason I can experience it is because I have been united with Christ. What has God done? God is going to take the rest of eternity, the ages to come, to display his redeemed children to the universe. These are displays of my grace. You are displays of his grace. For the world to watch for the rest of eternity, that is amazing. What was life like before God's gracious rescue? We were dead. What did God do for us? Why did he do it? Because of his grace. Because of his immeasurable grace. Because he is rich in mercy. Because that's just who our God is. And as I thought about this, there are some of you 
who have such a warped view of our God. You see him as the proverbial policeman in the sky waiting for you to step out of line. Oh, I can't wait for Brian to do that because I'm going to whack him good. But some of you act like that. You know, when I became the senior pastor here, it's amazing. Before I was a senior, I would invite someone down to my office to talk, and we would talk. Ever since I became the senior pastor, and I'll say, would you come back to my office and talk to me? The, the first thing they say is, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I hate that shift. <laughs> if I ask people to raise their hands, how many people have I reamed out in this church? I don't think I'd find very many hands. Why do we treat God that way? He loves you. He is rich in mercy towards you. He wishes to shower grace upon your life. Made us alive. Raised us up with Christ. Seated us with Christ in the heavenly places right now. How can we receive his gift of salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. How often have we quoted this to other people? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. The basis of our salvation is God's grace alone. The instrument of salvation is faith. Now understand, do the demons have faith? Yes. Yes. It says the demons believe and shudder. So this faith that we're talking about here is believing God and acting accordingly. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. You can believe in God and be hell-bent. But when you believe in God and act accordingly, you take the gift he's offered. And God's gift is free and unconditional. And he says, there's no works involved. There's nothing I can do to earn even 1%. Because if you could earn 1%, you would boast. Look what I did. I helped God out. Yeah, that is laughable. Because I was dead. Don't forget the front end. I was dead. What could I do for God? Nothing. But here's a truth that snuck in on my thinking that I want to shout from the rooftops. Since we have not been saved by our good works, then we cannot lose it by our bad works. Think about that. God isn't counting our bad works. I'm in Christ. I was dead to God and now I'm alive. 
I've been resurrected with Christ. I've been seated at the right hand of the Father. What could I do to lose that position? Guess what? Nothing. It's all of God. Before I even go on, the question is this morning, have you received the gift? Have you understood that you are dead spiritually to God? But he wishes to make you alive. He wishes to take you from death to life for eternity. Place your trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ so that he can identify with you and take you from death to life. So what difference does salvation make in my life? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word masterpiece is a rich word in the original It's where we get the word poem from. We are his work of art. We are God's masterpiece. He took something dead and lifeless, corrupt, decaying, and made us alive with Christ. And he says, I'm not done showering my grace and my mercy into your life. And so you're going to continue to grow and change. So God continues to work in you. God saves us to bring him glory, which involves our resulting good works. Do my good works save me? Never. But once I've gone from death to life, I don't just sit on the couch and do nothing now and say, oh, I can breathe. No. God says, I have given you life for a purpose. I want you to display my compassion, my love, my grace, my mercy, my favor with others. So not only does he work in you, he works through you. And God has prepared beforehand. He has laid out today things for you to do that will bless other people. And you have to decide every morning, like often I do, God, reporting for duty. What do you have for me today? Show me. Make me sensitive to your spirit so as that call comes in or that person drops by the office or I'm out in the community. You wish to use me to bless someone else. Do I earn my salvation that way? Never. But I have now been made alive for a purpose. To honor him. God has a plan for our lives. So we should walk in his will, fulfill his plan. You could almost take the title of this message from helpless to regeneration and you could cross out the word helpless and say dead. From dead to regeneration. Because God's 
grace gives us life. And it unites us with Jesus Christ in such a unique, powerful, spiritual way that as Christ has experienced now resurrected life, we experience it with him. What does this mean for us? I'm asking this morning that you don't avoid the question any longer. Are you spiritually dead and need life? Do you have a life that's responsive to God and his love? Or are you just going through the motions? You're here because that's what you do on Sunday morning and you get to see your friends. I beg you to place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. Secondly, though, Do you understand that you, as a believer in Christ, are God's display case for his grace and love? As a church, let's get real. We're flawed. We're sinful. Some of us are capable of stupidity. Amen? Amen. Stubborn? faithless, and we look around at ourselves and others and we say, God, how could you use such a motley crew like this? And he does. That displays God's infinite patience and mercy. Amen? Amen. I did not hear you. Amen. Amen. Who else but God would use people like us? We are called to share the really great news with others. I thought for years about this passage. I have thought how to illustrate it. I thought of putting this in the message I'm going to end with this because I think if I share this illustration with you, you will never forget this passage of Scripture. Years ago, I'm not sure how I ever afforded it, I bought my wife a beautiful diamond Tiffany setting brooch that she occasionally wears, but it costs so much she doesn't wear it very often because it's that expensive. And I remember picking this out from a jeweler friend that my father had that he kind of helped me understand a little bit about buying jewelry and helped me pick out the engagement ring and design it for my wife. But if you've ever gone to a jeweler and been serious about buying a piece of diamond jewelry... What a good jeweler always does, he says, let me turn up the lights and let me get a piece of black velvet to show it against. Because as I did this, all of a sudden, the diamonds begin to sparkle, do they not? Even from your distance, you can see it's taken on something different. It's just a piece of black cloth behind it. Nothing special. God's grace 
shines and sparkles because of the blackness of our sin, because of the depth of our depravity, because the fact that we were dead. And God's grace made us alive in him. And so as you think about where God has saved you from, if you were not saved as a child, some of you have very checkered pasts. That's the black cloth. That's the contrast between the black velvet and the shiny diamonds that God is building into each one of your lives. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that God has foreordained that you walk in them. How does God want to use you? I don't know, but he does. Let's pray.